This is My Finest Work, where artists tell us the story behind their favorite projects to help us understand what makes a magnum opus. And here's your host, co-founder and managing director of Dog Ear Creative, Maureen Harmon. When Carrie Temple came on board as the editor of Notre Dame Magazine in 1995, he was told that any topic was fair game for the Catholic University's quarterly, except homosexuality. For nearly 10 years, he and his team steered clear, but by 2004, says Carrie, it was just time. Together with his magazine team and willing writers, Notre Dame Magazine tackled the then-taboo subject not just with an article, but with an entire issue dedicated to the complex conversations around religion and sexual orientation and around vulnerability and stigma. It was also the first time Notre Dame welcomed an openly gay person to write for the magazine. Carrie, whose work has been cited in Best American Essays more than a dozen times, talks to me about this particular issue of Notre Dame magazine, the love that dare not speak its name, and why he considers it his finest work. I wanted to thank you for coming on and talking with me. I thought maybe we could start with you just telling us a little bit. It wasn't a single piece that you chose to talk about today. It was a package of pieces, an entire issue. Can you talk a little bit about what that issue was, what it was about? Sure. It was back in 2004. So, gosh, 18 years ago. And there had been stuff happening on campus related to gay groups wanting to have a place to meet. Notre Dame's a Catholic institution. So the whole concept of dealing with homosexuality was fraught with church concerns and church teaching. There'd been a lot being talked about. And to me, the role of the magazine is to put stuff out on the table and let's talk about it. And I ask questions and see where we go from there. And I had been warned over time not to deal with homosexuality in the magazine, but it just felt like it was time. And it seemed interesting to me just because, you know, it gets at human nature and sexual attraction and science and morality and just all these issues that impinge on who we are as human beings. And so I thought, you know, the way to do it is do it pretty fully. There was a father who had a gay son, and that was a linchpin piece for us. It was just, it was really personal, very honest, very human. His development as a father dealing with his sons being gay. Learning student who was gay, asked her to write something. We did a story on the church's position. Two alums actually who were married up in Minnesota, even back in 2004, had adopted two kids. One of them wrote a story for us. We interviewed people on campus. We just tried to come at it from a lot of different angles. But one of the amusing things to me is when we got near the end, you know, the church's position, even at that time, was it's not a sin to be gay, but you just can't be gay. Somebody said, you got to find somebody who's living by the church teachings that's a homosexual person who's decided to be celibate. And so I went to the liaison between the student group and the administration. She said, gosh, I have no idea who that might be. Uh, but fortunately, at the time, there was a, um, you know, I located, I think through Google, a guy named Ron Belgal, who had given talks in the Pacific Northwest. And he agreed to do a story for us on his decision to remain Catholic and be celibate. So the whole issue is coming at the topic from a lot of, a lot of different directions. So when you first took over the magazine, you write in an editor's note that you were told that all topics were on the table except this one. And so I was curious about where did the idea come from? Was it a product of staff brainstorming? Was there an event on campus that kind of triggered it for you guys? 
We talked about it as a staff after I had the idea, but I just felt like it was time. There was a student group that was not allowed to meet on campus. At the time, I was aware of a gay alumni group that was not officially sanctioned and would not be recognized by the university. There were some mild student protests trying to draw attention, and it just seemed like things were coming together. And again, it just seemed really interesting to me, and I felt like it was interesting to the university because as a Catholic institution, they're supposed to uphold and present and stay in line with Catholic teaching. And yet you had people on campus who were asking for, I don't know, some understanding, some support, some enlightenment about what it was. And back at the time, there were still debates on whether or not it was genetic or was it a choice, where it came from to be attracted to somebody of the same sex. So the other thing, the Catholic Church has this position on homosexuality, but I think it's pretty well accepted that the percentage of gay priests is higher than it is in the general public. You know, it's just one of those things nobody wanted to talk about. I just found it infinitely interesting to find out, to answer these questions. So I just want to talk for a minute about the essay in this issue written by the father whose son was gay. It was so honest and so personal, and I'm just curious how you found his story. Somebody had mentioned to me, this dad gave this talk at reunion. It was really well accepted. It was really meaningful to a lot of people. And if you ever do anything on homosexuality, he's somebody to talk to. So I contacted him and asked if he would be willing to, to write something for the magazine and go even more public. And he said, yes, spent a morning with him and his wife, stayed for lunch and just talked it through. And, you know, he's not a writer. He was an engineer all his life. And so I just said, tell your story uh, and make it as real as possible. And it really, to me, it's the, probably the most meaningful one because he was an old school guy who was very strict Catholic, very orthodox, and had had perceptions of stereotypical gays. And his son dispelled all that. And his son, you know, was near attempted suicide because of trying to come to terms with his sexuality. And so it's a really good piece because it's very personal, but it's also him dealing with the teachings of the church and grappling with all of that and then coming to his own determination about what it means to be gay and how it's okay. And that seems, in this day and time, that doesn't seem revolutionary. But at the time, 18 years ago, that was a big deal. People trying to come to terms with that. And what, one of my motivations for doing it is finding out that, you know, among teenage suicides, it's like three times as many gay teenagers commit suicide as heterosexual teenagers. And to me, that just seems tragic. And it just to get on a soapbox a little bit, it just seems life's hard. It's hard, whatever you do. And then to, to add on to people, they've got to come to terms with their sexuality in a culture that isn't welcoming and open to it. And then you lay on all this religious guilt onto them and it just makes their lives that much harder. It just seems to me unchristian. At the time, I got kind of fired up about the subject. So the, especially the father's essay and the student on campus are vulnerable 
pieces. And I'm curious about how you worked with those writers through that. You, you mentioned that the father is not a writer. And I know you teach magazine writing at Notre Dame. And, and so I'm curious about how did you work with them through something that's difficult and something that's kind of very public for them? You know, the dad was, was easy. He wrote a nice piece. There wasn't a lot of editing to it. Uh, he essentially just wrote the story straight out. I think there was some back and forth a little bit. It's been a while. The student I learned about from ML Goody, who was the liaison between the student groups. And this particular student, Rose Lindgren, I think is her name, spoke at orientations about being gay on campus. And so her story was one that she had told, she had dealt with, you know, before she did the writing, she and I went to lunch, we talked it through. Essentially, I'm just telling people, tell your story and make it as real and as honest as possible. We're trying to get people to understand. We're trying to build bridges here. We're trying to not enlighten people or preach, but just to get people to understand what you've been through and what it's like. Talking to her, you know, I'm straight. It was just, there were times I was felt uncomfortable if I was putting my foot in my mouth, if I was saying things the wrong way, if I was dealing from the wrong perception or stereotype. But her piece came in pretty clean too. And we were fortunate, the alum who had married another alum, two men, actually had written a novel. And somebody told me about it. Hey, do you know about these two guys up in Minneapolis? And I didn't. But he was also a writer. And so his piece was good. You've hit on it here and there, but I haven't asked you directly. Why did you choose this piece? What is it about it that makes you so proud, this particular issue? I think because at the time, we were going against the current. And it was something people didn't want to talk about. And it was something that I felt like we should. And I'm not a contentious person. I'm not a crusader. But there are times when it's like you just have to step up into it. And I just felt like now's the time to do it. And in preparation for this, we'll talk about the response in a minute. But I was just reading through the letters that we got. And it did. It made me really proud of what we had done. Another interesting story to, to me we had put the issue all together. It was on its way to the printer. And I was going to take a week's vacation. I was going to go down and visit my parents in Louisiana. And my parents are old school, very conservative Catholics, or they were, and went down there for a visit. And before I left, I told the vice president to whom I reported, I said, you know, you might want to tell the president of the university that this is coming. You might appreciate a heads up that we've done 26 pages on homosexuality and it's in the magazine and it'll come out. And so he said, yeah, you know, I'll tell him about it. And so my first day at home with my parents, the phone rings. I don't know how he got their number, but he called me and I'm talking to him on the phone in the den in front of my parents. And he's saying that he told the president and the president does not want us to do this. He said he does not want us to do this issue. He will not put his foot down and say, stop the presses, but it, he would feels very strongly that it would create a firestorm, and we don't want a firestorm right now. And so the vice president and I talked a few more minutes and agreed to let it sit overnight. And so, of course, I got off the phone. I'm trying to explain to my parents what's going on. It's like, to them, Notre Dame is this hallowed place. It has right. been. <laughs> You know, and it's like, you can't defy church authority. The president of the university doesn't want you to do this. What are you thinking? And they were old school when it came to human sexuality also. But the next morning, the vice president and I, 8.30 the next morning, we called and we talked to each other. And I'd say within 
two minutes of the phone call, we both said it's the right thing to do. And so that was sort of a sense of pride that going against currents and going against having been, you know, a Catholic boy since first grade with Catholic education all the way through college to go that route because I felt personally strongly about something. That's, I think, one of the reasons I'm proud of it. And, you know, I heard from the president later that he was fully in support of the magazine and everything we've always done through the years. And so that felt good. Uh, Internally, I didn't hear a lot more from a lot of other people. It's the evolution of the place. And Notre Dame, it's a very traditional place. And when I was there for two years, it was all male. And so you can imagine the environment and the the mindset and the thinking about manhood and masculinity. And it, you know, it has hung on there for a long, long time. I think the place is better now. I don't know how much we had to do with that, but I just, to me, it's one of those things. It's, you know, families don't get better until they deal with problems and put them out on the table. If you, if you keep hiding and not talking about things, the problems fester and you hurt people and people are alienated and it's just better. It's better to talk. One of the things that stuck out to me, and this is in your editor's note of that issue, we have done what we always do, report what's really happening on campus, let members of the Notre Dame family tell their stories, provide the forum for an engaging exchange of ideas, thoughts, beliefs, and experiences in order to help us all understand our world, each other, and ourselves better. And then you kind of, you took it head on and said, some issues divide us. Often these are the very ones that most deserve an airing. Often these are the very ones that come in shades of gray defying black and white answers. And I think that that's, you know, as I looked at this issue and that's what you did, this was not a black and white answer for Notre Dame, even at that time, but showing the humanity in the issue and, and everything that's involved with it, like you said, has kind of fascinated you from the, from the start. Yeah. You know, there's, you know, a whole range of things going on and the reaction that we got there were over a hundred letters or emails that we got. It was gratifying to me that there were only three or four that seemed sort of barbarically venomous, just stuff that you wouldn't reprint. I was expecting more of that, but well over half, I would say 60, 70% was very much in favor. Thank you for doing this. It's about time. Thanks for putting it out there. The people who objected, it was mainly cannot believe that the magazine would defy church teaching or condone a lifestyle that the church didn't, you know, approve of, that we were in favor of these things. But I think if you look at the pieces, we just let people talk and let people share. The church's position was there. Some people said that the church position did not get enough support or enough airing. You know, my feeling was we're trying to explore a topic. We're not a catechism. And for the the church to have a voice in this, you know, seemed fine to me at the time. So I was going to ask you, aside from from this particular issue, one of the things we ask most folks who talk to us on the podcast is about your own writing process, because I think a lot of writers and illustrators and photographers like to hear from other creatives about that process. Do you have such a thing? Are you kind of a get up in the morning and write 500 words and then go on about your day? Do you have a writing process? I don't have a writing process. So you don't say to your magazine students, <laughs> here's how you do it. 
You know, what I tell them, what I really emphasize is thoughtfulness and to think. I kind of live with the stories that I'm writing. And so when I'm walking from the parking lot to the car, I'm in the shower in the morning. When I'm waiting to get lunch, the wheels are turning. These things are in my mind. I just, they sort of live inside of me. And I, to me, it's that thought process that you go through where the subconscious does some work. And I'm a methodical, slow writer. One time I was talking to a class years ago and somebody had asked me about how much I rewrite. I said, you know, I don't rewrite. Once I'm done, I feel like I'm done with it. It was a, my predecessor as editor asked me, what did I do when I wrote then? And I said, well, I always start at the opening paragraph and I want the opening paragraph to be perfect. I cannot move on to the second paragraph until I'm happy with the second one. And then when I come back to my computer and I sit down, I start again at the first. And when I come back in the morning, I started square one again, and I work my way paragraph by paragraph through a story. I never sit down and take up where I left off because, and he said, well, you're rewriting, you're reworking. And I said, yeah, I guess that's true. I do it slowly that way. I think one of the things that that enables me to do is put my mind back in the story uh, so that there's a consistency of voice. The feel of a piece, I think the atmosphere of a piece comes from the personality of the writer. I think that's important. I think good writing comes from the feelings inside. It's not just the the intellectual content. To me, I just immerse myself back in that so that when I'm doing the writing, it and I are one. Now, I say that and it's, you know, as editor, I got emails, I got people coming into my office, I got the phone ringing, and it takes a while to carve out that headspace, but it's so liberating. Once I do, then it's like, I'm not answering that email. I'm not dealing with that today. I'm not answering that phone. I slide my door shut magazine to me. It's liberating. So when I'm working on something, I just love that process being in a zone and doing the writing. It's interesting that you said, you know, when you're done, you're done. So I was curious about in my career, when an issue of the magazine comes out, I don't want to look at it. Do you go back and read your pieces and go, I could have done that better? Or this doesn't. I go back and read the ones I like. And the ones it's like, yeah, you know, that sounds pretty good. That's held up pretty well. The other thing that I tell students about being done is done is never write a piece to get it finished. And they look at me kind of weird. It's like, it's our tendency as writers to get down that home stretch and to want to wrap it up. And you sort of want to rise into a crescendo and now I'm done with it, you know, and I want to get it in the hands of an editor so that they can, you know, I can get the pat on the head or something. I learned over time is you got to let it sit and you got to write the ending as slowly as you wrote everything else. You said you go back and read the ones you like. What was the experience like as we approached you to come talk to us. What was the experience like to go back and see this issue back from 2004? I felt real good about it. Like I say, I, you know, just last night I sat and read the letters and it felt good. Like somebody told me about a month after it came out that doing this issue probably had saved lives. That was a really good thing to hear. Getting the letters, one of the things that I learned through that process was that There are going to be people who are angry and upset. And at the end of it, I mean, and it wasn't the first time, but one of the things I realized, and again, I don't, I'm a very accommodating person. I don't like tension or friction with other people at all, but nothing hurt physically. 
you know what I mean? You're always aware of what the reaction is going to be. And, you know, what, how are you going to handle this? And it's like, you know, I can be on the phone with somebody chewing me out and say, you know, we just don't agree. Sorry. I felt like everything in the magazine was defensible. And it's one of the things that when we look at a piece, do we go with this or not? I need to personally feel comfortable that I can defend this when I get an angry caller. And there have only been a few times that I felt like, man, we were really out on a limb with this. I can't really defend this story. But yeah, reading through those and the the people who had been hurting, who had been hurt by the university, and this was part of the healing process, it felt really good. I'm glad that things are better at the university than they used to be. So I was going to ask you, of the pieces in the issue, we talked a little bit about the father's piece. Is there one that particularly stands out to you, whether that was in the editing and writing process or when you've gone back and read that issue? Are there any pieces that you're like, yeah, this was exactly what we had hoped to do? Interestingly enough, it's the Q&A. Oddly enough, it's the Q&A with the woman who was a nun who was liaison between the student, the gay students and the university. And it's just, it's a Q&A. It's getting at the idea that in her job, she's got to stand by church teaching and support what the church says. And then she's got to deal with these students who are grappling with these tough issues of their own sexuality, their place in the church, whether or not they're intrinsically disordered, are they aberrations? It's a short story. It's just a Q&A, but it's like, that's where the rock and the hard place meet. But I think that gets to what I read to you earlier, this is not just the magazine, but institutions of higher education are where we have these conversations. Not that that's the only place where we have these conversations, but where we can approach something that's not necessarily black and white and look at it up from all angles. But, you know, the problem, don't you think things have shifted in the last five or 10 years? To me, it's, everything is more contentious. There's so much more anger. There's the divides are there. Nobody wants to listen to the other side anymore. It's continuing education. What's going on in the world? And, you know, let's talk about it and bring bridges. Let's have conversations and see if we progress, find common ground, all these places with gray areas, and they're all gray. It's interesting you say that because I, the further along in my career, I think the more nervous I got with every, because you don't know the phone calls that are going to come or whatever. Do you think that that what we're feeling is a shift is really affecting editors' creativity and the kinds of topics they might have taken on back in 2004? Yeah, I yeah. know it's affected me. You know, the temperament is different. The mood on campus is different. I don't like admitting this, but I'm probably more cautious than I was at one time. The magazine came out of the, the 70s. You know, when I was a student, it was Watergate, Vietnam, Woodstock. I mean, that's my generation, my era. Vatican II, all the changes in the church. And over time, the open windows, the dialogue, the let's explore, let's examine, let's talk about all this. The conversations have slowly, they just slowly died down a little bit. Now, not totally, not completely. Well, I'm amazed at the work that you've done at, at Notre Dame. And I understand that feeling of cautiousness, but I think that you are still pushing forward on some stuff that needs to be talked about and doing it in a way that's, like you said, where can we come together in, in these gray areas and have conversations? So uh, to me, that's what the magazine should be doing. 
So I just want to take a moment and and thank you, Carrie, for coming on the podcast and talking to us about writing and about the piece that made you most proud. Oh, you're welcome. I was honored to be asked and happy to do it. It's, you know, obviously a, a topic that's of real interest to me personally. So thank you. Thank you for listening to My Finest Work. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And please reach out to us with your feedback and ideas at mfw at dogearcreative.com.